This morning we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and you will find Isaiah almost exactly in the middle of your Bible. So if you're using a church Bible, it's page uh, 687, actually I think it's 686, but there you go, or in the large print Bibles, 1060. Now, if you've ever looked at Isaiah before, you will have noticed that it's a big book. It has 66 chapters, the same number of chapters as there are books in the Bible. And when we come to such a big book, it's helpful to have some sense of what it's about. What is it that holds it together? What does it show us? What should we be expecting to get from it? And what I would suggest to you is, when we come to the book of Isaiah, we should be expecting to get a picture of the king in his beauty. That's the title for this series, because I think it is what this book is showing us. The phrase is taken from the book of Isaiah. As far as I can tell, it is unique to the book of Isaiah. And it occurs right in the middle of the book. In chapter 33, the Lord himself says to his people, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. That king is the Lord, and this big book is here to show us his beauty. In all that it deals with, and it deals with a lot, in all that it deals with, it is ultimately pointing us to the beauty and the loveliness of our God, our king. And so when we come to this book each week, that is what we should be praying and expecting to see. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why, why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with, soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter 
in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. And in this passage, we hear the Father speak. But before we think about that, the very first words of this passage set the scene for us. They tell us what this book contains. If you have a look at verse 1 again, it says this book contains the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The first thing to notice is that this big book we're going to read is one singular vision. So what verse 1 says, it is not a jumble of little visions all cobbled together somehow. It is a single vision all 66 chapters are a unity. We said a moment ago, ultimately this book shows us the king in his beauty. That is what emerges from the book. But on the ground level of this book, it focuses on Judah and Jerusalem. The beauty of the king emerges from this vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it's very specific. 
And in fact, we're told this vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem came to Isaiah in a specific time period during the reigns of these four kings of Judah. So we're talking about roughly 60 years. Later on in chapter 6, Isaiah will tell us about his call to ministry. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. That was 740 B.C., 740 years before Jesus Christ. And the latest event recorded in this book is the death of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. That was in 681 B.C. So, the pieces of this one unified vision came together over a period of roughly 60 years. During that time, there were two superpowers in the world, one at a time, really. When Isaiah began his ministry, the superpower was Assyria. But later, Babylon emerged as the dominant force in the world. And compared to Assyria and Babylon, Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, was a pretty obscure place. Certainly in terms of world politics, Jerusalem in Judah was a backwater. The rest of the world didn't take much notice of Jerusalem in Judah. We might wonder why we should take notice, not only of Jerusalem and Judah, but Jerusalem and Judah in the 6 and 700s B.C. Do we really need a 66 chapters long vision concerning that little place so far removed from us, given at a time so far removed from us? Well, the answer is, yes, we do. We do need this vision. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Isaiah says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth are a way of referring to all creation. So what we have in this book is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which all of creation needs to hear. This vision has significance for all creation. God's dealings with Judah and Jerusalem will impact all creation. This book that begins in the second verse by calling the heavens and the earth to listen, this book will end with their transformation into new heavens and a new earth. This vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem ultimately deals with the recreation of the universe. So its scope reaches from the 8th century before Christ through our own time today and out into the eternal future. This vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem has significance for all nations at all times. The opening verse of the book tells us who it is that is delivering this vision to us. It's Isaiah, son of Amos. But who gave him the vision? God, yes. But how does this God choose to describe himself? In the course of this book, he will be described in many different ways. He's the creator, he's the judge, he's a warrior. He's the king, he's the savior, he's a shepherd. This God is all of those things. But here, 
Right at the beginning, how does he describe himself? As the Father. In verse 2, he says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Of all the portraits God will give us of himself in this big book, the one that he wants us to see first is that he's the Father. Apparently, this is the foundation of all the other portraits of God we're going to see. And what kind of father do we have here? We have to ask that because there are all kinds of fathers in this world. There are distant fathers and careless fathers. And there are involved fathers and devoted fathers. What kind of father is God? He's the father who mourns a broken relationship and its bitter consequences. And we learn straight away, God is not the one who has broken this relationship. The children have broken it. So who are these children God reared and brought up? It's the people of Israel. God says that in verse 3. The descendants of Abraham. The book of Genesis describes how God appeared to Abraham and made great promises to him. Promises about his descendants. Abraham's descendants would be his people. They would be God's people. And through them, God's blessings would come to the whole world. Abraham's descendants would be God's people. And ever since that day, God was a wonderfully attentive parent. He rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt He brought them eventually into the land of Canaan, which he gave to them as a gift. And God watched over the establishment of Israel as a kingdom. All that history is recorded in the Old Testament. For many generations, the Israelites have been growing children. And through all of it, God has been the loving, attentive parent of his children. But the children have rebelled. And they have rebelled not just in isolated instances. They have rebelled as a settled way of life. They have deliberately distanced themselves from God's wisdom and authority. And you can hear the poignancy in God's words as he describes it. You can hear the emotion in the middle of verse 2. I reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The sense of that is even the ox and the donkey know who cares for them, but my children don't. Verse 4. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. The Holy One of Israel is one of the most significant titles used for God in this book. It occurs again and again. And it's a title that 
captures both the transcendence and the intimacy of God. He is the Holy One. He's transcendent above all. And in the same phrase, He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the transcendent one who adopted Israel as His children. He joined Himself to them in an intimate relationship. That is the Father Israel has spurned. That's the one they've turned their backs on. The foolishness of it, the corruption of it, to be so blessed, to be loved with divine love, and yet to forsake the Father who loved and blessed them. The Father mourns that broken relationship, and He mourns the bitter consequences as well, the bitter fruits of Israel's rebellion. Verses 5 and 6 describe Israel as a badly beaten and wounded body. That's what the people are like. Verses 7 to 9 then point to what that actually looks like. Your country is desolate, your city is burned with fire. Now that may be a reference to what happened to the northern part of Israel. Long before this period of time, the kingdom of Israel had split into two into a northern kingdom called Samaria, or sometimes Ephraim, or sometimes just Israel, which can be a bit confusing when you read it, because it was only part of Israel. And then there was also the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, for many years, they existed side by side, but in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was devastated by the Assyrians. Completely devastated. So half of rebellious Israel was gone at that point. And that may be what God is talking about here. Or he may be talking about one of the lesser attacks that Judah suffered in the same time period. But in any case, the point that's being made is Israel's rebellion against God, their father, has not turned out well. The results have been bitter. God, their Father, has not shielded them from the consequences of their choices. They turned their backs on their Father's care. They spurned His wisdom and authority, and the results have been unpleasant. Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, is still standing, but it's in a precarious state. If you look at verse 8, daughter Zion is left like a Shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And while she is still standing, we're told she's more like a rickety shack in a vegetable patch then she's like a glorious walled city. And that's a bad way to be when your enemies have their eyes on you. In fact, verse 9 says, it's only down to God's grace that Jerusalem has made it this far. By rights, she deserves the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, those two cities were notorious in the Old Testament for their great wickedness. 
The book of Genesis describes how their wickedness was removed from the earth when God rained down burning sulfur on them. God hasn't done that to Jerusalem yet, but it's not because they deserve better. In fact, in verse 10, God actually refers to the rulers and people of Jerusalem as the rulers and people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's saying is Jerusalem's wickedness is on the same level as those two cities that are now long gone. Turning their backs on God their Father has not been going well for Israel. And it has not been going well for the whole human race. There are certainly ways in which Old Testament Israel was unique. But in other ways, Israel was a microcosm of humanity. Israel's rebellion against her loving, attentive father mirrors humanity's rebellion. It's a miniature version of it. Just read the opening chapters of Genesis and see God's incredible care for the first man and woman. You'll see that his work of creation centered on the man and woman. They were the the jewel at the heart of God's creation. Nothing was too good for God to provide for the man and woman. Read those chapters and you see a father pouring out his love on his children. Nurturing them, blessing them, setting them up for prosperity and for every success. And what was the result? They spurned God's care. They turned their backs on his wisdom and authority. And the consequences have been bitter ever since. Each new generation has continued the corruption of its ancestors. It is only by God's grace we haven't all been removed from the earth like Sodom and Gomorrah. This vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem is one we all need to hear. And as we hear it today, we must not make the mistake the people of Judah and Jerusalem were making. They thought they had a solution to the bitterness and the vulnerability of their situation. But their solution was a non-solution. It was the non-solution of religion that is heartless, not relational. God, the attentive parent, is looking for a relationship with his children. It's not what every parent is looking for with their children. God is looking for a relationship, but what he is getting is thoughtless rituals. He's getting token gestures that might involve actually a reasonable amount of expense on the people's part. They might look pretty impressive, but they're not expressions of the heart. They are ultimately just attempts to placate God. They're attempts to throw God a bone while the people go on spurning Him in their hearts and their lives. Just look at that again in verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? 
I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Now, if we are at all familiar with the Old Testament, if we've dipped our toe into it at all, this might cause us to scratch our heads a bit. Because we know it was God himself who set up these sacrifices and these burnt offerings. It was God himself who asked for the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. It was God himself who arranged Israel's calendar around Sabbaths, feasts, and festivals. It's all carefully set out in the books of Exodus through to Numbers. So then, what is all this? Why does God say he cannot bear it when the Israelites do what they were commanded to do? In fact, he goes so far as to say, I hate what you're doing with all my being. That is incredibly strong language. What are we to make of it? Well, the fact is, all the rituals and all the practices God gave Israel, they were never intended to be just rituals. They were given as ways for sincere worshipers to approach God. The rituals were ways for people to express the devotion of their hearts. They were never intended as ways to throw God a bone, to placate Him while you live the rest of your life as if He didn't exist. That was not what the sacrifices and feasts were for. And when it is all treated as a way to buy God off with a, a bull or a goat slaughtered on the altar, when it's treated that way, then it all becomes meaningless. Ridiculous even. As if God really wanted fattened animals in their blood. What value does that have to God? And when those things are given as an overflow of the heart, when they're given as expressions of genuine sorrow over sin, when they're given with genuine love, from children who delight in their father and want to be close to him, then the sacrifices and festivals have significance. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of fat and blood and random dates on the calendar. And I think we can understand this if we think of a situation that is somewhat parallel. Think of a husband who buys his wife an expensive bouquet of flowers every week. Every week. And several times a year, he buys her an exquisite piece of jewelry. 
Are those gifts meaningful? Well, it depends, doesn't it? If that husband's pattern of life is to respect his wife, if he speaks to her and treats her respectfully, if he looks for ways to help her out day to day, if he makes it his aim to serve and honor her, if he demonstrates daily love for his wife, then when the flowers and the jewelry arrive, that lady will know they are genuine expressions of love and devotion. They come from her husband's heart. On the other hand, if the husband ignores his wife day to day, if he's never around, or if he is around, but he speaks to her and treats her disrespectfully day after day, like she's stupid, like she's nothing but an irritation to him, then when the flowers and the jewelry arrive, what significance do they have? None. Certainly, if the lady cares about an actual relationship, they have no significance. In fact, those offerings are an insult, aren't they? Because they imply the lady is so shallow that the gifts will keep her sweet. They'll cause her to put up with the disrespectful treatment. Without a daily context of love, respect, and commitment, those gifts are just a bunch of stems, petals, and shiny stones. And the lady could quite legitimately tell the husband where to stick his stems and petals and shiny stones. And so it is with God our Father. That's what we heard in these verses. He has no pleasure in religious gifts that are heartless. And the Israelites' gifts were heartless. Their heart wasn't in them. How do we know that's the case? Well, look again at verse 15. At the end of God's description of how he hates their sacrifices, he says in verse 15, I'm not listening to your prayers. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. In other words, you live careless lives. You're careless about me, and you're careless about what I care about. The book of Isaiah will tell us what God cares about is justice and righteousness. Doing what is right. In verse 17, he's going to mention defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, and pleading the case of the widow. That is a favorite list for God comes up again and again in the Old Testament. God cares deeply about people being treated well. God hates injustice and oppression. And here in verse 15, God says to the people of Jerusalem, you do not share my heart in that. Your hands are full of blood means you have blood guilt on your hands because of how you treat others. At the extreme end of the spectrum, that included murder but it includes things that stop short of actual murder. All oppression and abuse leaves us with hands full of blood. And that includes turning a blind eye to evil and injustice when others are doing it. 
That's how the Israelites lived their lives. And that is how God knows their offerings and sacrifices are meaningless. That's how he knows their hearts aren't in their worship. He knows it because they don't share his heart for the oppressed, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, as we all know, today, the time when animal sacrifices could have significance has gone. The time for those things has gone because God's son, Jesus, offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. God doesn't ask us for bulls and goats. Even when our hearts are full of love for him, those animal sacrifices have no meaning anymore. God asks us to come to Jesus and rest in his sacrifice. That part has changed. But what we need to see is the challenge here has not changed at all. The Israelites couldn't hide behind their sacrifices if their hearts were far from God. If they did not share his heart. And today... You and I can't hide behind Jesus' sacrifices if our hearts are far from God. If we don't share his heart. Jesus is not a magic word that throws a bone to God, gets him off our back, so we can live the rest of the week like he doesn't exist. The words, Jesus is my Savior, those words can be just as meaningless as the Israelites' animal sacrifices were. If we use the words, Jesus is my Savior, to try and distract God from our lack of heart for Him and our lack of heart for others, then the words are meaningless. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Jesus is the only Savior. He is our only hope. We'll see that in a moment. But we come to him with our heart. The core of who we are. We give our lives to God, not just our words. And one writer makes the point in a very sobering way. He says, let us... Never use religious words when we do not mean them. If we speak admiringly about discipleship, but resist its demands at the same time, it will harm our soul and our inner life. Let us be reserved with religious terms and expressions of faith. Using them without meaning them will destroy us. And our hypocrisy will be especially disastrous for our children. Words are important. But religious words that don't come from the heart do not restore our relationship with God. What we need is renewed relationship through inner washing. And change lives. It's significant that after a long explanation of why the Israelites' religion is unacceptable to him, God doesn't leave it there. That's not what this book is about. God is still the attentive Father. 
and he offers a way forward. That's what this book is about. Look at it in verse 16. Wash, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Notice what comes first in those two verses. Wash and make yourselves clean. Now, the Old Testament law did contain regulations for ceremonial washing. But when we consider all that God has just said, we know he is not talking here about external rituals anymore. He's talking about washing the heart. We'll see that in a moment. Then, after the washing, the washing comes first, then comes the changed life. A life that begins to reflect God's own heart for justice. And in verse 18, God explains the washing he has in mind. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Scarlet and crimson were very strong dyes in the ancient world. They were very strong dyes that did not wash out. Of course, they're also the colors of blood guilt. The blood guilt that God has said is dripping from the hands of these Israelites. The blood guilt, guilt that honestly drips from all of our hands. Because we, along with these Israelites, are stained deep with the guilt of our sin. We cannot wash it off. It is deeper in than any dye could ever get. But God offers us a washing that deals with even the deepest stains of sin. He invites us to come and have our crimson stains turned white as snow. But you'll notice there's no explanation here of how God will perform this washing on those who come. That explanation will come much later in the book. Later in Isaiah, we will hear about a servant who will heal us by his wounds. His blood will wash away the blood guilt of those who come to God. And the New Testament explains that servant is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true sacrificial lamb who poured out his blood on the cross so you and I could be cleansed to the core. Jesus is the one we come to for God's washing. But how do we come? We've already seen we don't come with words we don't mean as if the words, Jesus is my Savior, are magic words. No, verse 19, God says we are to come willingly, admitting how deeply, deeply stained we are, agreeing with God that we are rebels who've turned our backs on him. We come agreeing that we deserve to be forsaken by God as we have forsaken him. And, verse 19, we come ready to be obedient, ready to give our lives to God. 
not hoping we can say some magic words and then go on living as we did before. We come ready and eager to live as God's obedient children. Children who want to reflect our Father's character. We come like that, and God promises us washing, cleansing. He offers us a blessed future. You see that in verse 19 too. You will eat the good things of the land. This book will have much more to say about the blessed future God has for his children. But for now, we're just told the future will be blessed. He's a loving, attentive parent. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And verse 20 reminds us we desperately need him. If you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. There is only one way to life, one way to be restored to the Father. If we reject it, we will not have life. So these words call us to choose, but thankfully they are also a message of hope to us. These words come to a people who are given to corruption. They come to a people living in a land that is desolate, And these words offer cleansing and life. Life with God. Life in relationship with the Father. So if you don't know him as your Father, these words are an invitation to come to him. If you are a Christian, these words are a reminder of who your God is. He is your loving, attentive Father. He has provided the cleansing you desperately need. And he welcomes you as his dearly loved child. So let's never be satisfied with just saying words about God or even saying words to God. Let's come with our hearts and lives as well as our words. In a moment, we're going to sing a final song that celebrates the cleansing God the Father has provided through His Son, Jesus. But first, before we sing, we're going to have an opportunity to join together in a prayer of confession. Now, I'm going to put this on the screen, and in the light of all that we've said about not saying words we don't mean, I'd ask you to take a moment to read through this short prayer quietly, and then we'll stand, and if you're ready, to pray it, if you're ready to pray these words, and we'll pray them together and then we'll sing. But first, just take a moment to read them quietly. These are words that you're ready to say to God, then please let's stand together and join in this prayer before we sing. Most merciful God and Father, give us true repentance for our sins. Open our eyes to recognize the truth about ourselves. 
so that acknowledging our faults, our weaknesses, and our failures, we may receive your forgiveness and find in Christ the power to serve and please you and bring honor and glory to your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
God the Father says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Thanks be to God. Amen.